If you love listening to us here on the Sox Machine Podcast, what's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show? And there's no better place to host than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So if you're ready to do more than just listening to us talk about the Chicago White Sox, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join and check out the description box in this episode to find out more. That's bwhustle.com join. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 26, 2021. On this episode, we will be recapping the series in Milwaukee. Thanks to Lance Lynn and Liam Hendricks, the Chicago White Sox were able to salvage one win before leaving the Cream City, but the White Sox offense only scored five runs in three games against the Brew Crew. The sore spots on this team that we've been talking about for weeks, not getting better. Bullpen, second base. And there was some curious decision-making by manager Tony La Russa in the wind that may suggest just how confident he is in some of the players that he currently has on hand. But the White Sox are 59 and 40, and for game 100 of the 2021 season, they get terrific news. Aloy Jimenez is back. And that's where we'll start this episode. And joining me to discuss is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. It was great to hang out with you this weekend in Milwaukee, which we'll get to in a moment. But the big news we've been waiting for is Aloy Jimenez's return. 74 home runs in 62 games played might be a stretch. <laughs> but I think the hope is still there that Jimenez can provide a big boost to the White Sox offense. Yeah, I think the underlying skills are there. He looked comfortable. The reports were that he was more or less his normal self in Charlotte for better or for worse, as some people saw some of his diving catch attempts that maybe uh, you don't want that Jimenez to come back, but everything else about him was normal. I mean, the numbers were a little bit down or unimpressive, but you know, I wonder for a guy like him, if he's treating a rehab stint more like spring training, like the, the veterans in spring training who, uh, you know, hit maybe like low two hundreds with, you know, one homer and a bunch of strikeouts and everybody worries what's wrong. And then April rolls around and the numbers are the same. So that's what I'm hoping. It, it, and I imagine the White Sox will have an adjustment period for him too. They'll 
ease him back in the lineup, maybe like with Adam Engel and not having him play two games in a row or two out of three or, you know, doing partial games or, you know, if he has to play defense, like, you know, using defensive replacements liberally, but uh, it'll be a nice problem to have, or at least not an, even a problem, just still be a nice topic to manage because uh, the White Sox, um, when he went down, yeah, I think we all imagined that it was going to be a lot tougher mm-hmm. to get through 100 games without him. <laughs> Instead, he comes back with a nine-game lead and plenty of cushion for him to get back up to speed. I still think he could do some significant damage for the White Sox in, in 62 games. Uh, 20 home runs would be quite a stretch uh, over a 62-game span, but 15 home runs, is is that asking too much? I think that'd be a nice total. I, I think I'm hoping for double digits. I, I think with his, you know, he's a guy who can hit the ball on the ground when he's not um, right or he's, uh, you know, getting pitched to in a way that's effective. He tends to roll over pitches and put them on the ground. So I think I'm kind of expecting early on for him to contribute to the White Sox ground ball problem early. So uh, I, I think, you know, I would hope for maybe 10 homers over 60 games, especially since he probably won't be playing all 60 games. Yeah, you know, I think if he plays 50 of those 60 games, it'll be uh, ambitious or at least an accomplishment, um, both because of, um, you know, maybe the the breaking in period and then also um, – you know, maybe easing into October if they can get to a position where they can set everything up for October. Um, yeah, I, I imagine, you know, 50 games we're talking about rather than 60. And so 10 and 50 sounds, you know, pretty fair. We recorded this episode before the official move was announced because the White Sox have to take someone off the 26-man roster to officially add Loy Jimenez. So that press release by the Chicago White Sox is going to be sent out before Monday's game against the Kansas City Royals. My guess is that Jake Berger would be getting sent down by the White Sox. Could it be anyone else, Jim? No, I, I think if we saw, I mean, there it could be somebody else. I shouldn't say like, you know, absolutely not. But more, I'm, I'm along the lines of thinking that it's going to be Berger as well, just because we didn't see him, you know, at second base. They didn't really give thought to him at second base. The strikeouts are, you know, sizable and, you know, he can still work on his defense. Uh, every day, you know, at either position in Charlotte. So it seems like it was a good run and an encouraging run. He can go back to Charlotte with his head held high, um, but also something's probably on his to-do list. And uh, when September rolls around, he'll probably right, be right back into the uh, thick of the roster, getting at bats and, and, you know, key pinch hitting opportunities and whatnot. And Tony LaRusso before Sunday's game against the Milwaukee Brewers, he was asked when he announced the news that Jimenez will be joining the White Sox on Monday about Jimenez in left field. And Larusa, I think, demonstrated that he has a lot of confidence in Andrew Vaughn and spoke highly about how well Andrew Vaughn has been hitting. And he needs Andrew Vaughn in the lineup every day. And if you go to fan graphs, for left fielders who have played a minimum of 500 innings, when you're looking at the variety of defensive categories, Andrew Vaughn is smack dab in the middle. For someone that didn't play this position in college and he didn't play it in the minor leagues and he just got thrown into this uh, spot due to Jimenez's injury, it is quite impressive that Andrew Vaughn is playing league average defense in left field. Uh, And I don't have confidence, Jim, that Aloy Jimenez can do that. Uh, (laughs) So I still believe that it's the right call that Andrew Vaughn stays in left field, which means that Aloy Jimenez 
pretty much is your permanent DH or your primary DH at the very least? That's what I'm thinking. Um, and I'm, I looked it up too on, on StatCast because I hadn't looked up what he'd done in StatCast in a while for outs above average. And yeah, Andrew Vaughn in the middle, um, he's one out below average, which I think is you know fine. 141 out of 233. So bottom half. For left field, that's yeah. good. No, that's fine. So yeah, he's, uh, and actually that's not all outfielders. That's all position players. Let me, for some reason, okay, not filter anybody it. out when I selected left field. Um yeah, it's uh, he's been good, and I one thing I noticed when watching the game on Sunday when I was sitting on a plane for six hours because it got diverted from Nashville to Memphis, and unfortunately, you know, Southwest is streaming of uh, ESPN for free, so I watched the game, and uh, one thing I noticed is that on pop-ups, uh, like to deep shortstop, shallow left field, or, you know, fly balls to the gap with hang time, um, haven't really noticed any... Uh, communication problems in a while. Like Tim Anderson will backpedal. He'll be waving his arms, calling for it. And then Andrew Vaughn, when he comes in, he seems to call with authority to where Tim Anderson can go from waving his arms to getting the hell out of the way. And Vaughn closes in and makes the catch. And there's no nothing close to a collision. Like Anderson seems to know where to go when he hears it. Vaughn seems to know the timing he needs in order to call it off, like without being too late, you know, being sure without being late. Um, and, and that's kind of a, a point, I think, of his his comfort out there, his maturity to know, you know, maybe there aren't a whole lot of balls where he, he'll take charge, especially like when Adam Engel is out there. Uh, and then when Luis Robert comes back, same thing. But when it comes to the, the iffy ones behind third base, behind shortstop, uh, and then the ones that, you know, hang up there and left, he seems to take enough command of it to where that's never a doubt. And I think... You know, should Jimenez come back, you have the issues with him long walls and him, you know, uh, in, in, you know, just diving and, and perhaps putting himself at risk. But you also have the risk of collisions, too. And just, you know, that was also a problem. <laughs> I think 100 games without Jimenez is a long time to get comfortable with somebody else. And I think that's that's probably the one thing that's got to give. You, you can't have it all when you miss 100 games and you're, you're that bad in left field to where you expect everything to be. Uh, back the way you left it so I'm hoping he takes it in stride and I hope that you know Vaughn if he's in a slump or you know should there be a position where they just want to get him off his feet or they want to get a Bray off his feet you know I don't think it'll hurt I can't say for sure but you know having Jimenez out there for seven innings you know just to keep him interested and you know um, you know not have him rule out in case something happens to Vaughn but yeah I think it's got to be Vaughn's position just because He's earned it, and I don't know. The team gains nothing from having Vaughn at DH and having Eloy in left. I agree with you. Maybe you put Vaughn at first base and you give Abreu a day off his feet and have him yeah. DH and then, oh, man, hold your breath and put Jimenez in left field uh, and hope yeah. there are very few fly balls in left field. But back to what Tony said as far as his confidence in Andrew Vaughn, Andrew Vaughn was one of the few White Sox hitters that had a good weekend in Milwaukee. Again, the White mm-hmm. Sox only had five runs uh, over the weekend against the Milwaukee Brewers. In the month of July, Andrew Vaughn's hitting 328 with a 352 on base percentage, and he's slugging 597. He is having a big month. And what's maybe even more impressive for Vaughn, his strikeout rate, is just 11.3% in the month of July. Uh, Obviously, with the four-day All-Star break, uh, there's not going to be as many games in the month of July as there was in June. Uh, But Andrew Vaughn is having a really strong month, and he's been one of the stronger hitters for the White Sox lineup. 
So speaking of the White Sox lineup, you got to keep Andrew Vaughn in it. And obviously, Jose Abreu is not going anywhere. Uh, so where do you put Aloy Jimenez if, if he's DHing, Jim? Do you put him right in the cleanup spot behind Jose Abreu because that was the game plan uh, before Jimenez, Vince Carter, the left field wall during spring training? <laughs> uh, I think maybe for you know opening yeah, not opening day, like uh, Jimenez's first game, like you can treat it like opening day and have him first just as a way to say, like, look who's back. You know, he's back in the lineup. Um you know, and, 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 you know, we, we, this is like our way of saying like, we're back and we expect big things from you, uh, and, and have some fun with it. But I think, you know, should Jimenez come up and, you know, hit three grounders and strike out twice in his first game and, and ground into a couple of double plays, then I think, you know, he can probably back off it a little bit and then slide him down to sixth or something like that. So that, that's kind of my feel for it right now. And also along your Vaughn point, when I looked it up against righties, this doesn't include, uh, the game on Sunday, but through yesterday, through uh, Saturday, um, Vaughn is hitting 345 uh, with a 373 OBP and 655 slugging against right-handed pitching in July. That's huge. Yeah, and six strikeouts in uh, 58 plate appearances. No, yeah, 59 plate appearances. So, so a little yeah. more than 10. percent Yeah, basically he's he's striking out the same rate whether it's righties or lefties. So yeah, that's he's made the strides you want, and I don't think you disrupt that. So, uh, it's, it's really, uh, yeah, it's, it's a testament to, you know, I, I guess his, um, you know, just, just being able to take some punches, uh, ob- absorb some blows and learn from them, not get into in and over his head. Also, I think, you know, that that's a hat tip to Tony LaRusso. We talked about how well he did it with Michael Kopech, um, you know, introducing him to relief work and then you're moving him between the rotation, uh, for spot starts and doing a nice job of getting his workload up. I think you can say the same thing about Vaughn. He did a very nice job of introducing him against major league competition when he was really throwing him in the deep end. And uh, I think that what you're seeing right now is, is the results of those days off on April, you know, back in April when, you know, everybody's frustrated that he didn't start opening day and uh, wasn't starting and left against some pitchers when Larry was out there. And, you know, you can't necessarily say like, you know, perhaps if he started every game in April, it still looked the same. But I think, you know, this is kind of what LaRusa had in mind. Just trying not to demoralize him, you know, trying to set him up for success. And then over the course of the season, add responsibilities. And I think now he's at a part where he can just accept all the responsibilities. I still think Adalas Garcia for the Texas Rangers is, he has a lengthy lead in the American League Rookie of the Year race. Mm-hmm. But Yvonne continues this hitting hitting this well in July, and he goes into August. There's an opportunity that Vaughn can catch Garcia in many hitting categories, and it makes me wonder, should I put some money on Andrew Vaughn to win the American League Rookie of the Year? Uh, you know, last okay. last week I started the Carlos Rodon for American yeah, League Cy Young I, campaign. I just had that thought. Like, maybe that's a little bit too much pressure. <laughs> What, you don't think I can handle multiple campaigns, Jim? Come on. <laughs> no, I think they collapse under the weight of your expectations. <laughs> oh, all right, so that's the big news, and it'll be very exciting Monday night to see Aloy Jimenez back in a White Sox uniform. First pitch is going to be at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. We'll touch on who will be pitching for the White Sox in this four-game series against the Kansas City Royals later in the show. But let's go back as far as what happened this weekend in Milwaukee. Again, the White Sox lost two out of three. 
The Friday and Saturday night games were not close as Milwaukee ran away late as they won 7-1 on Friday and they won 6-1 on Saturday and we were in attendance for the Saturday game. So let's talk about the good part as far as going to Saturday game. The Mm -hmm. tailgate. So we co-hosted a tailgate with our friends from the 108 and as far as expectations for people to come, we had like 150 people that filled out the Google form. So we were expecting 150. Uh, we got way more than 150 people that stopped by the tailgate. So thank you guys so much. And it was a blast to to host that tailgate. I, I was mm-hmm. I was very impressed with how many people came. And it sounds like a lot of people had a lot of fun uh, attending the tailgate. Yeah, uh, when we're having uh, brunch the next day, kind of uh, reviewing it, um, Beef Loaf uh, asked, you know, to the table. I said, like, how many people do you think came, out, you know, came through uh, the the tailgate? And I thought about it, and given how quickly we ran out of koozies, like in the first half of the tailgate, we were out of our two hundred koozies, right? Yes. So I, I think you know at that point, and then it only got more full as like got closer to game time, and people were coming through, like in the say the last hour. I think that's kind of when it peaked. It would seem like maybe, you know, 400, 450 people. And that felt like being on the conservative side, trying not to, you know, overestimate it. But, you know, he came to the same idea, 400. And that's, yeah, that's way more than we thought. And, yeah, I think it's both, uh, you know, when I saw the crowd on Friday's game on the TV, I thought, wow, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of Sox fans, like half and half, you know, know, 20,000. And, uh, yeah, just I think it's, you know, the, the people who plan for it and probably just a lot of, People tagging along with the people who planned for it and, you know, late word of mouth and, you know, people seeing photos and maybe saying, I'm going to stop by the Sox machine tent. Uh, and people did, and it was great. And I think it's uh, you, you guys, uh, I would say that you you and uh, the 108 crew, uh, when it came to logistics and and stocking up and, and, and uh, My Sox Summer getting the beer hookup, like, we were not wanting for... Uh, you know, materials, tailgating <laughs> materials. And, uh, you know, a lot of people heeded the call to bring ice throughout the tailgate. So as hot as it was, and, uh, it was 90 degrees and just direct sunlight. We were, you know, well hydrated. Everything was well cooled. And it seemed like everything held together for the entire time. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, and a hat tip to you and the 108ers for, uh, you know, start to finish. Just it seemed like a really well executed event. And for the future, so a few things. One, everyone's been asking me about the koozies. I know FOMO sucks, okay? But no, I'm not reordering koozies. <laughs> they were for the people that attended the event, Fo- and not everyone FOMO could sucks, get a koozie. You mode. You <laughs> mode. <laughs> I just, no, we're not going to be reordering koozies. I know they're awesome, but next summer. At this same business brunch that we had with our friends from the 108, we can announce that we will have another away tailgate destination to be announced when the 2022 schedule comes out. So if you didn't get an opportunity to go to Milwaukee, which I know we all had that series circled on the calendar for almost a calendar year because they announced the 2021 schedule pretty early uh, during the 2020 season. That, hey, if life opens up again, uh, enough people get the vaccine, we can go ahead and tailgate. We can have a big party in Milwaukee, and we were able to do that. There were so many White Sox fans uh, that went to American Family Field slash Miller Park, for those that are still calling it Miller Park. 
And uh, it, it was a blast. And it was cool to be part of a sold-out stadium, 41,000, half and half with Brewers fans. Unfortunately, the game was not awesome for the White Sox. Uh, but it was a it was an awesome experience to see everybody. And thank you guys so much for attending the tailgate. We will have a tailgate next year. And yes, we're going to have a special edition koozie for that tailgate. So if you didn't get one this year, you got a chance next year. All right. So the action on the field. Uh, Saturday, Carlos Rodon, uh, as you mentioned, Sox Machine Live, it would be critical for the White Sox starting pitchers to get to the seventh inning because we just can't trust the bullpen. Carlos Rodon goes four innings. Uh, Lucas Giolito on Friday, I thought, had a strong start uh, as he went through six innings and then Tyrone Taylor, which not a lot of people knew a lot about, but we quickly found out uh, how good he can be over the weekend as the White Sox pitchers had a terrible time getting him out. Uh, Hit the grand slam and the Brewers run away late. Rowdy Tellez hits two home runs. On Saturday, even though I thought Ronaldo Lopez threw well uh, as Tellez hit a home run off Lopez, I still thought Lopez hit well. But, you know, watching that game on Saturday, just the defensive mistakes that the White Sox made uh, and still calling to question as far as Zach Collins' defense ability at catcher. Louis Garcia forgets to cover first base, even though the previous inning he made a terrific play to rob Avisil Garcia of a hit. Uh, Jose Abreu makes a bad throw to home. The offense isn't hitting. And then on Sunday, uh, they went three to one. And it's mostly because of Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn was great on the mound. And Lance Lynn and Sebi Zavala drove in the three runs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think on Sunday, that's what I'm chalking it up to is. You know, last week I, I was stumping for Carlos Rodon to be American League Cy Young, but I also did mention that his strongest competitor might be his teammate in Lance Lynn, and, and that might have been a a big start to help Lance Lynn's Cy Young campaign, Jim. Yeah, but don't don't screw him up. Um, I'm not yeah. trying to. This isn't reverse jinxing here. I'm I'm just you know giving him applause, yeah. the much needed applause that he should be. Yeah, getting. no, it, it it was a. Uh... You know, it, I, I think it's like second to Dylan Cease in terms of like both sides of the ball uh, dominance. But uh, I, I think we saw both, you know, uh, when, it, when it comes to the, like assessing the series and how we talked about it before it started. Um, you know, we talked about how the Brewers have strong right-handed pitching, like three strong right-handed pitchers. So let's see how this White Sox lineup does with that. And I think the answer is... Um, not well, or, you know, when you have like Tim Anderson needing to set the tone at the top of the lineup and he goes over, I think he went one for 12, he went over his first 11. Um, yeah, that's kind of one thing, even though he's been better against righties and lefties this year, he can just, when you have that tough of righties and they can expand the zone on him, just a lot of, you know, outs more on the feeble side from the top of the order. And then, you know, Yohan Makata didn't have like a dominant series and Jose Abreu didn't see a lot of ground balls, a lot of double plays. So, you know, that's that. And I think that's why it's big that Vaughn stepped up because basically ever since like Nick Madrigal's injury, I think that's kind of where the, the lineup tilted, you know, a, you know, back to its 2020 problems of being, you know, really vulnerable to right-handed uh, pitching. And then, you know, Yasmani Grandal went down and then that, that hurt them even more. Uh, so there's that. And then you had the defense and that's just, yeah, I think, random. So like the Johan Makata missing the plate, that's random. That's uh, just... I didn't even mention yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're losing the challenge and a, uh, 
loophole or at least like just a, a strange technicality that uh, apparently just that wasn't uh, a part of the design when they designed instant replay like first time now know how many years uh you know eight years or whatever instant replay has been around that really hasn't been tested like that so uh that was weird um but yeah just the the bullpen issues too like you know giolito goes uh six they have one inning to cover in the seventh it, it, it blows up <laughs> then uh uh you know rodon struggles and then you know ruiz gives up a homer and lopez gives up a homer like and that's a pretty good day by the bullpen and and telez takes him deep a couple times so they had some scars there and then when it came to sunday you know having uh you know lance lynn go six and then you know larusa having to piece it together between kopech and hendricks and ends up getting two innings out of hendricks i, I think you're still seeing the same lack of trust when it comes to the bullpen. So I think the issues are still there. I think the White Sox have the kind of starting pitching talent that can allow them to only score five runs over three games and win a game. Like, I, I think that's a strength of the team. And that's why they are nine games up in the Central. Just they've been able to avoid skids like that because of pitching performances like Lynn. But, you know, as the deadline approaches, it's, you know, the, the concerns are still very real. Yeah, because since the All-Star break so over 10 games brian goodwin six for 29 no extra base hits lurie garcia two for 24 no uh, just the, the one extra base hit a double zach collins two for 17 uh and gavin sheets is five for 22 he's got a couple of home runs those are your left-handed bats right now outside of yoan makata and obviously not having yasmani grandal in the lineup uh, because Billy Hamilton's no longer batting left-handed. I guess we should throw in Carlos Rodon's one plate appearance uh, as the left-handed bat. But the lefties that the White Sox do have on hand are not hitting since the All-Star break. And those are the types of hitters that you're going to need when you are going into the postseason and facing strong right-handed pitching. If the White Sox come across a similar series like they did this past weekend, against the Milwaukee Brewers because in the postseason, you're going to be facing that team's three best starters. And if they're all righties, you'd like to see someone who bats left-handed in the lineup uh, have a good series. And for the White Sox, since the All-Star break, their left-handed bats are just not hitting at the moment, Jim. Mm -hmm. And this brings the conversation to Lurie Garcia. And as I've been pretty positive about Rookie of the Year campaign and American League Cy Young campaigns, I'm going to be negative. Lurie Garcia cannot be the starting second baseman in the postseason for the Chicago White Sox. And I say this because I think second base is Lurie Garcia's weakest position. He doesn't have a problem at shortstop. He doesn't have this problem at third base. But at second base, Lurie Garcia gets lost. As in forgetting to cover second base on a slow grounder to Tim Anderson during uh, the Houston series and Dylan Cease's start, forgetting to cover first base on the wheel route on the wheel play uh, that Collins throw becomes an errant throw because Garcia is not there in time. Uh, so those are just fundamental mistakes you cannot have in the major league level. And offensively, like I mentioned, he's two for his last twenty four. He's ice cold right now offensively, and kind of goes into our next topic here about Michael Kopech batting. I don't think Tony LaRusse has got a lot of confidence in Danny Mendick either at the moment. So it it goes back to this sore spot for the White Sox at second base is that they need to find another solution because when you get into the postseason, these little mistakes could have 
huge implications and it could turn a game upside down and you just don't want that to happen and that's why I think there's no way Lurie Garcia could be the starting second baseman in the postseason because you just open up yourself to that opportunity where Garcia gets lost. It's not his strong, strongest position, and it costs you. Yeah, I wrote about Garcia on uh, you know, over the weekend just talking about how he always seems to end up like as a one win above replacement. And, and when you talk about wins above replacement, the benchmark is you know two wins above replacement is like a – an okay starter. And then, you know, three is, you know, okay to good three to four is good to, you know, above, you know, or above average, definitely above average. And then four to five is all-star. And then, you know, five to seven and seven up is like, you're talking about like uh, MVP candidates there, but with Garcia, he always seems to always gravitate towards one win. And whether it's like, you know, a season where he starts most of the season in center field or a season where he plays 16 games and, you know, hurts his thumb and is out for the rest of the regular season. Like, no matter what, he rounds up or rounds down to one win. And that's basically like a, a decent backup. Like, it's a guy who should be in the majors, just, you know, probably... Uh, a bench player on an ideal team and then maybe like a, a second division starter you know, just filling in uh, for like a, a, a rebuilding team. Like that's the kind of player that that is. And every time you think like he's going to outpace it. So like a few years ago when he was getting everyday reps in center field and had a really nice first half, looked like he was on pace for three wins, which would be above average. And then like just goes into a tailspin the second half. And then we're seeing the same thing this time. Like, had the terrible start, and then you know over the course of June, really ramped up his production, finished uh, looking like an average starter, and maybe like an okay replacement for Nick Madrigal. But then second half opens, and yeah, two for twenty four, and making mistakes, and also had the base running mistake too in the Houston series that was costly. So even like though he's a very good base runner, uh, when it comes to you know Fangraphs ratings, just like even that kind of backfired on him. So there's like a a curse on him or a hex on him that prevents him from like distancing himself from that one win above replacement. And I think uh, it's it's tough because, you know, it, it's a weird um, situation because you know, should September roll around, should October roll around, and Grandal is back and Jimenez is back and Robert's back, and you have basically every piece of the lineup spoken for, you have depth at every position except for second base. Like, that's fine theoretically like if you have Garcia batting ninth or you had Danny Mendick batting ninth and and having him there for his glove and executing on the defensive side and whatever you get offensively is fine like that's okay like that's you know you most lineups are like that most lineups have a guy they'd rather not see it come to the plate and uh they get by with him just the problem is though is that you know second base when you look at uh the in-house replacements like that's the one obvious place to upgrade and if you upgrade that position then you don't have to worry about going three for three with the other guys, Grandal and Jimenez and Robert. Like, should one of them have a setback? Should one of them be uh, below average, you know, healthy playing but below average? Or uh, one of them re-injure himself and be out of it? Like, at least you then have the depth to maybe fill in for that position uh, and hope for adequacy. But then second base will be average or better there. So that's why I think I would be still proactive uh, with addressing second base even if it seems like it could be a luxury at the end of the season, just because uh, should there be any setbacks whatsoever, then all of a sudden, I think that's a case where Rick Hahn be, could be kicking himself. Garcia is still going to be on your 26-man roster going to the postseason. 
Yeah, I, I still think he's better suited to be your super utility guy because I think he he's good at short. He's good at third. He's been dependable in the outfield for the White Sox. You know, that's five positions. and That's more than half of the positions that are on the field. Second base, I don't know what is going on, but he just does. He seems lost, which is odd because, again, he's good on the left side of the infield and short at third base. And he doesn't make these type of mental mistakes or fundamental mistakes that we have seen since the, the All-Star break. It's just... It's just not good timing. If Lurie Garcia saw this as an opportunity to stake his claim to be an everyday starter at a, at a specific position, he's not doing a good job right now uh, as far as uh, solidifying that role with the Chicago White Sox. But I still think he's going to be on a 26-man roster. The White Sox are not cutting him. But what is odd, going back to Sunday and tying this into a very curious decision that Tony La Russa made, is that Michael Kopech batted. Now, in his career, Michael Kopech, unless Universal DH comes after the CBA, may get another chance to hit in the major leagues as a starting pitcher at a National League ballpark. Mm -hmm. But he is a reliever. And coming out of the bullpen, after getting through a seventh inning, which wasn't smooth for Kopech, but he was able to get out of that jam... He hit for himself because the pitcher spot let off. Now, Tony La Russa has so much experience managing games in the National League. He knows what a double switch is, but he opted to not double switch, and he still had Michael Kopech hit for himself. And I think it's because... I wonder, Jim, and my theory is because nobody, as far as the beat reporters, based on the postgame uh, presser, straight up asked why did Michael Kopech bat it for himself? Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe Tony just doesn't have a lot of confidence because as far as double switch, I get it. You don't want to double switch out Andrew Vaughn at that moment because he's got an opportunity to bat in the ninth inning. I get it. Vaughn has been your best hitter the weekend. Don't take him out. Uh, maybe you still like Brian Goodwin in center field and you don't want to swap him out. Okay, I get it. Uh, folks on Twitter pointed out, well, you could have swapped out Sebi Savala for Zach Collins. But as we just mentioned earlier, Zach Collins is terrible defensively. And Lance Lynn you know, saying the praises of Savala defensively and framing uh, behind home plate. So maybe LaRusse is more confident that Savala in his defensive ability late in the games. And then there goes back to Lurie Garcia we just mentioned why Lurie Garcia can't be the starting second baseman, uh, but Tony La Russa doesn't have enough confidence in Danny Mendick to be that defensive replacement late in games uh, to do a double switch and have the pitcher spot where Garcia was hitting. Uh, so then he can, uh, when he called for Michael Kopech, uh, he has a position player batting in the eighth inning and Kopech's spot never comes up in the game again. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just such a curious decision because... He bats for himself, he goes into the eighth inning, he walks the leadoff hitter, and he's pulled. That is the end result of having Michael Kopech hit for himself, is he faces one batter in the eighth inning and walks the guy. And that's why it's curious to me, because then it's like, that is avoidable. There are so many risks as far as having Michael Kopech hit. Mm -hmm. It's the first time that he's hit in a game since high school. Okay, he's has to go in in the major leagues and he actually swings. Maybe the game plan was I wasn't expecting him to swing and you're just giving up and out in a high leverage inning, which is also a questionable decision. 
Uh, but if that's how Larusa truly feels about some of the players that he has on the 26-man roster, I can't blame him, Jim. And I'm hoping that Rick Hahn is paying mm-hmm. attention. Uh, but how did you feel about the decision to have Michael Kopech hit for himself? Yeah, I didn't get a couple things. One was that uh, I didn't get why Garcia wasn't the one double switched for with Mendick coming in to replace him. Um, because I think ESPN kept mentioning Vaughn, you know, taking him out. And no, um, <laughs> leave him in, take Sheets out, take Garcia. He had options, even Goodwin in center, you know, replacing him with Hamilton or... Uh, at a mangle. Uh, but when it comes to like Kopech, you know, the thing I didn't understand was like the hamstring, like exactly. Yes. So that's, that's why I didn't like, and, uh, that, that's kind of, uh, I think the unnecessary risk, like, you know, you know, the hit by pitcher, the, the normal thing, uh, risks of hitting, like that's one thing, but you know, guy had, who just had a hamstring issue. Like, why is he running like hell to first base after ground hitting a grounder? Like, why is he swinging? Why is he running? Like that's Yeah. I, I didn't like any of that. So that's no matter how much you might not like Mendick or Collins or whatever, just that can't really happen. You know, if Kopech has to go up there, he just can't swing. Right. And maybe that maybe Tony gave him the take sign and Kopech ignored it. Just like your Mercedes earlier this year, uh, because Kopech's a competitor and he thinks he could put the bat on the ball. Okay. That's fine. But again, you haven't hit since high school. So good luck. Uh, it would be something if LaRusse's thought process is I have more confidence in Michael Kopech hitting for himself and starting the eighth inning than I do in Zach Collins or Danny Mendick being defensive replacements and doing a double switch. That would be something, Jim. It would be very telling for Danny Mendick and Zach Collins, and just how confident Larusa is in those two. Yeah, I still think it'd be an insult to Mendick though, just because like at that point you're not expecting him to come to the plate. At that point in the game, you just want for his defense to ensure that he doesn't come to the plate. So that's what I think is the most confusing yeah. to me. It ended up working out because Liam Hendricks was awesome, mm-hmm. and the White Sox get the win. It's just a curious decision, and. I I still like to know because it kind of helps it inform me as far as uh, the manage the White Sox manager's thought process on what went into that decision. And again, at the end, everything worked out. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But clearly, as the trade deadline is coming up, uh, Tony LaRusse is managing this team 
in trying to get wins the best way that he thinks that he can can do it. It is not necessarily smooth unless the White Sox offense comes to play in a big way. Uh, but when these games are tied, I think LaRusse is showing his hand, Jim, on who he has confidence in, who he doesn't have confidence in. And it's up to Rick Hahn to pay attention to LaRusse's tendencies or just continue having those conversations of, we need to shore up the spots where there is less confidence or I should say low confidence in these particular players of the 26-man roster. But there are there's help coming as we come full circle in the first part of the show. Aloy Heminis is coming to help out with the offense. Luis Robert is going to be coming back soon to help out defensively and with the offense. And Yasmani Grandal is jogging. He is running. He is testing that knee. And hopefully soon he will be coming back and helping out on the defense behind home plate. So there is more help to come for the White Sox. But again, the trade deadline is just five days away. I should say four days away. And uh, yeah, Rickon has some work to do. And with that, we will talk about as far as some significant trades that have happened over the weekend after a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. So as we just spoke about the White Sox having some sore spots in their roster still, and there are four days before the trade deadline and Rick Hahn has some work to do, there was a significant trade that happened shortly before the Sunday night game between the White Sox and the Milwaukee Brewers. As ESPN's Jeff Passan was the first to report, Pittsburgh second baseman Adam Frazier was traded to San Diego, of course, of course it's San Diego. And as far as the Padres, they are going to be using Adam Frazier as their super utility guy uh, because now they have <laughs> their their infield consists of players that have made the All-Star game. I don't I don't see Eric Hosmer much of as an All-Star, but it, it appears that their infield could possibly be at first base Jake Cronenworth. And then Frazier at second, Tatis Jr. at short, and Machado at third. That's a pretty good infield that San Diego has, and they needed more help as far as the left-hand side of the, uh, as far as the plate and their lineup, and Adam Frazier helps them with that, and they still have him under contract next season. And, of course, with the depth that the Padres farm system has, they were able to use their number five prospect in their farm system, plus two other prospects who are performing well this year in the minor leagues, but not in their top 30 to acquire Adam Frazier. And so that's one deal that has happened. Another deal for a second baseman could be happening and it does impact the White Sox this upcoming week. Mark Feinsand of MLB.com was reporting that the Seattle Mariners are close to a deal with the Kansas City Royals for Whit Merrifield as Seattle is not fading in the race in the American League West and challenging for one of the two wildcard spots in the American League. So the second baseman market is heating up, and we just spoke about that the White Sox uh, really could use somebody to help out at that position. So let's start with the Adam Frazier deal to San Diego, Jim. Is this a missed opportunity for Rick Hahn and the White Sox? 
I would say no, just because the price that San Diego paid seemed like the one that the White Sox couldn't. Um, they just don't have the players. They don't have the prospect capital. Um, you know, we, we've talked about it before with the Padres when they got, uh, you know, you Darvish and they got Blake Snell when they were making these deals happen with their prospect depth, just whether it was uh, players close to the majors, whether it was uh, teenage international talent, whether it was like guys who were outside their top 10, but would have been top seven, top five in the White Sox system, maybe even top three if you weren't, uh, if you, if you counted on like the Kopech, Vaughn, Madrigal, Crochet sector of the list graduating, like they might've been top three. The guys are giving up though. The Sox just don't have that kind of depth. And then you, you see who they gave up and the, the Sox don't have a position player on the infield, um, like Marcano. And they, you know, they don't have like the high performing outfielder like Sawinski and, um, Miliano is having like a massive strikeout rates in a ball, you know, 21 years old, but you know, given that, um, you know, he didn't have a 2020 last year, you just have to like, he's, he's performing really well at the level he is. So, I mean, like there are three interesting guys that they gave up and I would say Sawinski is kind of the, the guy who I think is going to be, um, the one who determines just how good of a package the pirates got because yeah, he just kind of came out of nowhere. He's on no top 30 list. But this year at San Antonio Double A, he's hitting uh, 269, uh, 400 on base percentage, 550 slugging, playing all three outfield positions. Like this is his uh, first pro season where he's done anything and he's doing everything <laughs> at Double A at 22, like a very good age to be doing it. So whether the Padres just developed it, whether they're selling high in a half season that kind of came out of nowhere and won't be replicated, um, that's kind of, that, that's he's the fascinating guy because, I mean, I think Marcano is, you know, obviously talented and um and also like the the Padres obviously have no room for him around that infield and I think you know, even Frazier will probably play some outfield just to uh, you know supplement that a little bit but um when it comes to Swinsky he's the guy just like who is this guy and and how come the Padres had him and how come he was appealing uh the White Sox really don't have that kind of guy well I, I you could sell maybe Mike Rodolfo maybe as he hit two home runs for Charlotte, his first two home runs on on Sunday at the AAA level. But you make good points. I mean, these are very good prospects that the San Diego Padres have. And for them willing to go three players when often we were discussing which two pl- prospects the White Sox would be willing to give up for Adam Frazier uh, is telling. Also, Pittsburgh is paying the rest of this season's salary for Adam Frazier. So that's how much that Ben Charrington, the general manager of the Pirates, liked the Padres' prospect offering is that they were willing to pay Frazier's salary for the rest of the season uh, to acquire these three guys. Uh, so that it's not heartbreaking. It's not backbreaking. It's just, why, San Diego, come on. Stop, stop, stop. Just stop getting the guys that I like the White Sox to get. <sighs> Anyways... Uh, but Whit Merrifield, we've been talking about him forever, it seems, getting traded uh, from Kansas City. So we'll see if that deal actually happens uh, to Seattle. But as the clock is ticking now, as far as the trade deadline, and I know we got some questions that we'll answer uh, in P.O. Sox. Uh, but when it comes to the second base market here, Jim, can Rick Hahn afford to wait into the last moment, uh, especially if we're seeing you know, a big piece like Adam Frazier go off the board. 
I think, you know, maybe time is running out on difference makers like Adam Frazier, like Whit Merrifield. Um, but I, I think, you know, if he's looking for somebody who can just start at the position, um, you know, whether it's a Jonathan Scope, Eduardo Escobar, like nobody who uh, fills out the top of the lineup the way a Merrifield or a Frazier does. But, you know, you don't mind starting there. You don't mind, um, you know, being that two win above replacement guy at that position. I think there are still options. You know, one guy I mentioned in my Larry Garcia post uh, over the weekend was uh, Cesar Hernandez from Cleveland. And I think it might take some, some, uh, some balls on, on, on Rick Hans part to you know, talk to his direct competitor and say like, Hey, you guys are going nowhere. <laughs> What's your second baseman? Like, I don't know what the, uh, you know, decorum is or, or what, you know, uh, you know, how those kind of, offers or whatever are uh, received in that position. But, you know, when you look at Hernandez, who's a switch hitter, who gets on base, who, uh, um, you know, he's, he's had a down year this year and he's struggled against righties this year. But when you look at his splits, you know, um, over the course of years, it seems like he's usually stronger against righties than lefties. So it seems like he just might be having a weird sample and, and, and a weird small sample when it comes to uh, splits and, and switch hitting splits that, you know, maybe the White Sox end up on the positive end of some regression. So he was one guy that came to mind to add to that list because if he's right, he's somebody who can hit in the top four and get on base. He's, uh, you know, he has more than 30 extra base hits. I think he's up to 17 homers. So uh, he can hit the ball of the park too. So um, when the gold glove last year offers a lot. So he's somebody I would add to that conversation of guys who aren't going to be all-stars, but can help. Yes, we record this Cleveland they did win on Sunday, uh, so they're 49-48 and 48 on the season. They're nine games back of the White Sox. They're five games back of the wild card. Maybe some would believe that Cleveland would be a white flag trade if they decided to sell parts off, but I just I don't see Cleveland, even if they get Shane Bieber back, Jim, that is a, that's a big gap to even try to make up ground on the White Sox and even in the wild card because right now, as far as in the wild card, you got Tampa, who's 60 and 40. They're a game back of Boston, the American League East. And then you got Oakland. Oakland's 56 and 45 right now. And Seattle is 54 and 46, despite their negative 52 run differential. Uh, they're a game and a half back of Oakland in the American League West in that final wild card spot. And then you throw in the Angels. The Angels are 49 and 49. And I haven't even touched on the New York Yankees and the Toronto Blue Jays, who are. The Yankees are three and a half games back of Oakland and Toronto's four games back of Oakland. That's just a lot of teams that Cleveland needs to hurdle over in order to make the wild card. So we, we it's easy to identify the sellers. Just look at the standings and see all the teams below 500. But here you have a 500 team in Cleveland. They may be in second place in the American League Central, but I don't think that's a bad idea, Jim. Maybe the White Sox and Rick Hahn should pick up the phone call Cleveland, and get Cesar Hernandez. I don't know if that return's going to be any different than, say, going and get Eduardo Escobar from Arizona. Especially since Hernandez, you know, he's a free agent at the end of the year. He, you know, they can't offer him. You know, they're not going to offer a qualifying offer. They're not, you know, probably they, they're not going to re-up with him because they have some middle infield depth. Uh, they weren't even, like, uh, hell-bent on having him come back to begin with. They signed him late last winter. So he wasn't a big part of their plans. He's not a big part of their plans going forward. So if they can get somebody for him, like, yeah, I'm thinking of like the, 
Jovan Nova trade where they gave up like Yordi Rosario. I guess that guy would be like Yolvin Sylvan or something like that, but some kind of low minors pitcher, what have you. Um, you know, that might be more than, you know, they can get elsewhere. And maybe they see that price and say like, well, we may as well just try to win with, uh, win as many games as possible to maintain interest, you know, and, and, and just wait till the off season to do anything more dramatic, but be worth asking about just because if he were say, um, like if you flip Jonathan scope and Hernandez and so scopes on the, on Cleveland and, Hernandez on the Tigers, then I think that's the easier call to make because, you know, another guy who's a rental and, and, you know, Detroit's playing respectably, but, uh, you know, they, they don't have any designs in the season and nobody expected them to. So to get anybody for Hernandez, I think that's a different position. And maybe, you know, it's a case where, um, you know, there's some psychology into it and whether some teams can accept sunk costs and some can't, but, uh, it would be uh, you know worth asking about just because if Hernandez has any positive regression in him and can uh, you know kind of uh, climb to his usual 340, 350 on base percentage, then yeah, that would help out a lot. How do you feel about the Whit Merrifield trade rumor? Do you think that we're going to see Whit Merrifield against the White Sox this week? I I think so. I just have a hard time imagining Dayton Moore doing it. He seems like he's been very reluctant to in the past he seems like he believes in contending or at least you know putting his best foot forward with the players he has you know, he doesn't go for it every year but he he doesn't really punt years either uh at least since they since the early days of the process like before uh you know, a few years before the world series so it's hard to imagine but on the other hand you know mary fields you know he's in his early 30s he's having like kind of a mediocre season this year like not his usual standard so uh if they could um, get something for him, I feel like they if they're going to sell him, if they're going to trade him. Like now would be the time to do it because next year he could, you know, maybe not crater, but just be ordinary. Yeah, and I think that's what they really need to avoid. They could uh, trade Whit Merrifield and call up Bobby Witt Jr., who is having one heck of a year down in the minor league. So someone that's been annoying to the White Sox for years, in exchange for someone that could be very annoying to the White Sox in the upcoming years. And quickly, as far as uh, this uh, series preview between the White Sox and Royals, the pitching probables, Kansas City's on a roll. They've won five straight games, and we'll see how they perform against the White Sox at home. On Monday night, a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start, Dallas Keuchel's on the mound for the White Sox against Mike Miner, which Mike Miner has beaten the White Sox twice this year. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see on how the White Sox uh, do against Miner for a fourth time. Uh, in 2021 as they beat Miner in Kansas City earlier this year. Tuesday night, 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. Dylan Cease is on the mound against uh, friend, question mark, Brad Keller for the Kansas City Royals. On Wednesday, again, another 7.10 start. It's Lucas Giolito against Chris Bubich. And then on Thursday, getaway day, this is a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Carlos Rodon looking to bounce back from his performance in Milwaukee against Carlos Hernandez. And I'm thinking the White Sox should win this series at least three out of four, if not sweep the Kansas City Royals, even though the Royals have been playing better baseball as of late. Um, but while we will have our attention on how the White Sox are performing in Kansas City, Jim, for the first time in a while, especially with the White Sox being buyers instead of sellers, uh, there also needs to be an eye kept on the trade market, uh, which is new because we talked about the trade opportunities a lot last year. I was pounding the table for the White Sox to acquire Lance Lynn, and of course they do that 
after the season and there it was a lot of haziness as far as with the pandemic going on and just how comfortable teams were in acquiring new players from other clubhouses that nobody was really quite sure if they were following the processes or not uh, as far as with COVID. Uh, but now that we are in the situation today, I'm still expecting Rick Hahn to be active and we got quite a few questions in P.O. Sox about this topic. So let's answer them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you can submit your questions and topics to us by following us on Twitter. We are at Socks Machine. But this week, our questions come from our Patreon supporters, which you can sign up and become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And Jim, I spoke about it before the P.O. Socks intro. The questions that we have about what could Rick Hahn possibly do before the trade deadline. So the question that we got here comes from Rodney. And Rodney wrote to us, with the trade deadline looming, I was curious if you two would be willing to pull out your Rick Hahn crystal ball and project what moves you think the White Sox will actually pull the trigger on before the window closes. I'll hazard a projection that the White Sox only move at the deadline will be adding Aloy Jimenez back and optioning Jake Berger. I hope I'm wrong and your crystal balls are more accurate windows into Rick Hahn's soul than mine. So Jim, I'll start with you. Between now and the trade deadline, what moves do you think Rick Hahn will make? I feel like he needs to add at least one reliever. I think that's the obvious case where, you know, if he's looking at it in hindsight, um, at the end of the year and like, say if they have a disappointing end of the season, I would call that like, you know, um, kind of fading at the finish and then having an impressive, um, ALDS and kind of going out in, uh, a minimal amount of games. Then I think he would look at back at and probably say like, well, you know, the bullpen was an obvious concern all along. We we're counting on Michael Kopech and Garrett Crochet, two rookies to be our setup guys, and that was dumb. And, yeah, I should have at least added somebody, even if the relief market's a little bit soft when it comes to dominant talent. Like, there's got to be somebody I could have tried. You know, there should have been an effort of trying, especially if there weren't many guys moving and maybe a deal could have been made. I think with second base, uh, as much as I'd like to see some, him add somebody, um, I think as we talked about with Jimenez and Robert and Grandal coming back, like, I think he can, you know, maybe rationalize into saying like that doesn't need to be touched. Like, you know, worst case scenario, or second baseman bats ninth in the postseason and plays good defense. Uh, but I think, you know, if I'm going to predict somebody, maybe Daniel Hudson, uh, since the Nats look like you know they're going to be selling, and you know the White Sox have ties, and you know the White Sox liked him. You know, <laughs> they kind of groomed him, at least in his starting mode. He's had to make some adjustments after two Tommy John surgeries, but. There's a history there, uh, a fondness there, and uh, with the Nats fading and Hudson being, uh, you know, somebody who's going to be in you know free agent after the year, that would seem like a good guy to go with. Okay, old friend alert. I'm gonna stick with the old friend alert that I've been. I think I've been talking about for a month now. I I think Rickon is trying to accomplish a killing two birds with one stone trade. Uh, in getting a reliever and second baseman in the same trade in one deal rather than multiple deals. 
And I will go with... I'm not confident about the Trevor Story and Michael Givens. I, I'm down... Be, I guess I'm between Jim, Eduardo Escobar, and Joaquin Soria, and Trevor Story and Michael Givens. That's 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 what I'm feeling that Rick Hahn is trying to accomplish right now. Is instead of multiple deals, one deal that addresses both the bullpen and second base. It, the the Soria Escobar one feels a lot more White Sox. Sure does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sure does. Well, Rodney, I I just. Maybe this is an opportunity, though, to talk about, Jim. What if Rick Hahn doesn't make a trade? That the trade deadline comes by and the only big acquisition in quotation marks is that Aloy Jimenez rejoins the team. What What if Rick Hahn doesn't make a trade before the deadline? I don't think it's a death sentence or like you're going to doom him and... Uh guarantee failure because the American league is weird. <laughs> a lot of flawed teams and, and a lot of injuries that uh, have been suffered and could be suffered. So I can understand if he, you know, tries to try to find the right price and, and can't find anything that's, you know, within his comfort zone, but it does seem like an unnecessary risk. Like, um, and, and one that you, when you look at the juncture, the white Sox are at where, you know, the, uh, making the postseason is valuable making a deep postseason run like at least winning a series is very valuable when it comes to postseason revenue and season ticket holder base and ratings like everything you that would help boost spending and and help fortify future rosters you know i, I think it's it doesn't hinge on this year but i think this year can really uh, accelerate everything they want to do financially so that's why you know, I look at this year and say, like, they should at least try. They should at least have some evidence of trying. You know, and, and kind of brings to mind uh, you know, when, when you read about the NBA and, and, and the Boston Celtics and Danny Ainge and, like, how Danny Ainge was the guy who was, like, always on the verge of getting a deal done. Uh, you know, like some, you know, either a player went somebody else, somewhere else or a, a trade hadn't materialized and, a, and just like, well, we were close or we were talking about it or we just – Almost did it, but just couldn't quite bring ourselves to. And that's kind of what it would feel like this time around with the White Sox. Just, you know, last year they had the same thing with Gerard Dyson. But as you mentioned, um, they, with COVID being weird, everything felt weird. Um, didn't exactly know. Yeah, the, they're kind of making up rules as they went along. So it was hard to know exactly like what the postseason would feel like when it arrived. Um, but this year, it feels very like a standard year. Attendance feels very standard. Everything, you know, I would say maybe the ballpark experience isn't quite standard yet because the vendors aren't uh, operational, but everything else about the season feels real and authentic. And so I think he should treat it as such and at least have some evidence. I, I think I would be underwhelmed if there's only like a reliever who wasn't guaranteed lockdown results with an American League team to show for it. But at least it would be something and it would be a little bit something for Tony LaRusso to work with. Uh, because as we've seen, you know, with Rick Renteria last year with the rotation, that I think, you know, frustration and desperation can set in when, you know, you don't address an obvious flaw and hope that uh, the guys on the ground and the coaching staff can 
be, you know, at the end of the season, miracle workers. <laughs> and uh, when the postseason rolls around and you're facing all good teams, uh, that just seems like really um, poor planning. And you know, poor planning usually leads to emergencies, which uh, leads to losses. And you don't have the waiver deadline anymore either, where I think it was what 2019 was the final season where you had the trade deadline and then the waiver deadline yeah. at the end of August to to possibly add other players. So, yeah, you don't have that either. So it's July 30th or you're going with internal options. Yeah, or praying for somebody to be released, and that typically doesn't happen to anybody who you want contributing in the seventh inning of a game. Exactly. So what's the percentage of a the likelihood of the White Sox making a move before July 30th, Jim? I'd feel like 80%. All right. You're pretty confident. Yeah. Yeah. I would, in my head, before you said anything, I had 75%. So I'm giving it a 25% chance that there is the possibility the White Sox don't make any move before July 30th. And then it'll be a very interesting press conference to hear from Rickon on why the White Sox didn't make any moves. But we are siding with. Pretty confident that the White Sox will be making some additions before July 30th. And when they do, uh, we'll be covering that breaking news on SoxMachine.com. We've been utilizing Twitter spaces for our live reactions along with other White Sox blogs and podcasts as well. If it is a big time move, we'll have an emergency Sox Machine podcast to discuss as far as the acquisition the White Sox make. And who knows, after we post this podcast, maybe the White Sox do make that trade. And this podcast becomes really old real fast. I wouldn't mind that, as the White Sox desperately need some help, especially at second base and in the bullpen. Uh, So hopefully a deal is coming soon, Rodney. But thank you so much for writing to us. Our next question comes from Azenrec. And Azenrec wrote to us, Drew Robinson retired as a player last week and moved into a mental health advocacy role with the San Francisco Giants. What do we know about the mental health resources available to members of the Chicago White Sox organization? And how do the team's mental health resources compare to those of other teams? Well, uh, for people who don't know, Drew Robinson uh, had a, uh, he, he attempted suicide and, and you know, has a kind of a, uh, grizzly story that Jeff Passon wrote a really uh, wonderful profile about him, but basically uh, I don't want to go into details too much because <laughs> it's pretty graphic to talk about, but yeah, just a live through it, have, ha- has obvious scars to show for living through it and came back to baseball and surfaced a little bit and, and it was a good story. And, 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 and so that's why he comes to this role as far as uh, it seems like a natural step forward to go into a off field role into working with baseball players on mental health. But White Sox, uh, I looked it up on their roster. I know they've had like, um, you know, they, they've tr- had some titles that kind of relate to it or adjacent to it. Maybe not specifically mental health, but they've had, uh, I, know, I know Ben Broussard for a couple of years was a leadership and develop, you know, basically like a, I think they call leadership and developments, but it's more like just kind of skills, like off field skills. Um, you know, mental training, um, you're working on the, you know, off the field stuff. Um, and then he ended up, uh, you know, leaving the organization, pursue a job elsewhere. 
I want to say Brian Anderson too was briefly brought back in the organization as like some, you know, kind of like an experienced guy, like to, somebody could talk to young players about, you know, he's had a wealth of experience. I wouldn't necessarily, he wouldn't be the guy I talked to about sensitive situations. <laughs> like Brian Anderson just doesn't feel like that guy, but uh, at least I know they brought him in to kind of uh, talk about uh, what it's like to deal with uh, adversity. Uh, and because he dealt with adversity in a very public way and, and maybe made some unwise career choices because of it. Uh, and I know at the, the international level that Aaron Santana is very involved with uh, players uh, who you know, go through the, the Dominican Summer League program and, and their international academy, um, you know, when it comes to uh, education, like you kind of like uh, American assimilation skills, you know, whether it's English classes, whether it's just, you know, learning how to manage money and, and, and kind of make your way around American cities. Uh, you know, she does a lot of work with that and, and uh, helps assist with players continuing education to get, uh, you know, whether it's diplomas or GEDs or the equivalent of GEDs in their countries, like she's involved in that. And, uh, you know, there have been some nice stories written about her and her work there. But when it comes to like, you know, actual mental health skills, like I, I don't know if the White Sox have directly address that yet and uh one thing i'm uh, that's kind of adjacent to this is uh june lee at espn wrote an article that mostly was centered on the los angeles angels talking about the minor league housing crisis and how like a lot of minor league teams and uh yeah there, there have been multiple um whistleblowers or or uh social media um expo exposes i should say maybe that's the word i'm looking for talking about just how, you know, minor league players have been left in the lurch when it comes to road accommodations and even at home, like, like some, you know, some, uh, you know, prospects are sleeping six to a house and people are sleeping on inflatable mattresses in the kitchen and it's really wearing on some people. And, uh, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what the White Sox, you know, whether they've been guilty there or whether, you know, they've been, you know, made any strides to address that, but, uh, you know, Lee in his article wrote that, you know, there, there are some players who are just getting worn down by that. <laughs> just the, the minor league life and how poor accommodations are. And when he talked about like uh, the minor league contraction and losing teams and leagues, they talked about that well, it was very important to be able to pay the players, you know, and, and streamlining stuff. And so far it does not appear that the savings have gone to the players at all, or at least, you know, for most teams. So I think there are ways that the White Sox can, Go to improve this and, and you know perhaps once COVID is in the rearview mirror and revenues are all the way back you know perhaps it's something that will be restored uh, as part of like restoring their scouting staffs and restoring other uh, departments because it, the, the way they described it was they did across the board cuts trying to keep everything as even as possible uh, but right now it seems like that position has kind of gone unfilled. It is disappointing on what is still happening to the minor leaguers. And it doesn't make any sense, right? Because these guys could be your future starters in the major leagues. If you want to have the best development, player development, one would think that, hmm, these 20 to 24-year-olds sleeping on air mattresses is probably not the most ideal sleeping situation. I know the Houston Astros are paying for housing for their minor leaguers, and it seems like that is a small gesture that the team should be doing uh, to help out their minor leaguers. Uh, but yeah, it's not clear as far as what the White Sox situation is, as Jim mentioned it, but it is something to maybe pay attention to if it stalls as far as player development, if guys are not developing as well, because 
the teams are not taking care of their minor leaguers, which is incredibly disappointing. And uh, it's a uh, man. It, it's hard to paint a. It's hard to paint a nice picture, glorifying life in the minor leagues and becoming a professional baseball player. If so many suffer, Jim, through the grind, and they are making no money at all, or they are getting paid, but the expenses are more than their paycheck. That man, is it even worth playing professional baseball for a living? Yeah, and, and you, we we talked about the Padres trade and Jack Sawinski, and you know he's somebody they drafted in the fifteenth round, and I'm guessing he got an over you know I guess third day bonus six figures, but still you know just kind of uh, four unremarkable seasons in A ball or lower, and then all of a sudden age twenty two explodes, and now he's the second piece in a, a you know big trade acquisition. So even if you know there's a lot of talk about how inefficient the minor leagues are, it's just like there's there are always stories every year of somebody who just surprises and becomes a guy. And that's why it seems like, you know, as the, you know, minor league and uh, affiliates are fewer of them, fewer leagues, like it seems like you should try to, even if, you know, the there's future streamlining and, you know, the league, you know, major league baseball's you know, more intent on complex baseball and, and just uh, not necessarily like, all that concerned about minor league communities, you know, <laughs> even if, you know, at the end of their 10 year uh, commitments with these uh, player uh, development contracts that, uh, you know, maybe they shed more leagues and yeah, it, it's depressing to think about, but you know, in the interim, it seems like it's uh, it would be an advantage for some teams just to support players, the minimal amount by providing them like the, you know, we talked about before, like, you know, the hierarchy of needs, uh, you know, just being able to meet housing and food in a way that's adequate or better. <laughs> that's, that would seem to at least you know, be worth trying for a few years just to see if it yields player development success stories, player recruitment stories, um, uh, scouting and signing stories, whether internationally or uh, in the stateside draft. Like There would seem to be some advantages from treating players well and giving them some security. Well, as in rec, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Hope. And Mark wrote to us, if the division lead was smaller, would you expect more urgency or action from the White Sox in regards to trades? I think so. I, I think uh, right now you're kind of seeing the lack of urgency from Tony La Russa. Uh, it seems like every other game uh, has a different strategy, especially if the you know, there is a loss. Like say, um, if if there's a game where he won and the, and the White Sox expand their lead, the next game if the situation presents itself, like say the starter only goes five or, or maybe goes six um, and there's a high leverage situation for a Ryan Burr or a Cody Hoyer, like he'll test those guys. Like, and, and if they fail, they fail, but it's, it's worth like, Hey, here's a vote of confidence. See what you do with it. Uh, and then if that doesn't work out, like we saw this weekend, like you know, the, the first game of the series that with the seventh inning collapse. And then, you know, the, 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 uh, Saturday game was never a contest. Uh, Carlos Rodon trailed after one pitch and that was the game. Uh, but then Sunday comes around like another winnable game. Uh, White Sox led in that one, but that's a game where he managed to win. So Kopech for one Hendricks for two after Lingo seven or uh, Lingo six rather. And I think that's kind of how he's managing with this lead is like uh, one for me, one for you, one for me, one for you. And I think, uh, you know, Han is probably saying it the same way. Like, well, you know, every, week that goes by and now it's probably every day or every series every series that goes by where we don't lose a lead or we don't lose a 
any significant ground in the standings. You know, right now it takes three series, three straight series uh, of all losses and all wins on, on both sides for Cleveland to catch up. Like that's a case where you can say like, I'm going to just keep, keep waiting. Like, okay, Adam Frazier, we can't meet that price. Um, Whit Merrifield probably can't meet that price. Or maybe they see the same thing that the Royals are seeing. Like, oh, he's kind of more ordinary now. Uh, and that's paying a high price for a name brand player. Like that's a case where he just might be waiting and there might be no desperation. And maybe like the James Shields trade, which was where he struck really early because the White Sox were desperate to shore up their pitching staff. And, and that had disastrous results on both the player they acquired and the player they gave away. I, I think that that's a good argument for letting things play out and not falling in love or, or trying to force, force love on a player who just might not be able to make a difference. I think his strategy right now points to, uh, let's just have a bunch of conversations open, and then in the last 48 48 hours, uh, pick the one that makes the most sense. That makes sense. That's a good explanation. Mark, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions and topics this week for P.O. Sox. Again, if you would like to submit a question or topic on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, you can do so by following us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. And also, and really the best way is helping support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters uh, get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of the podcast and the website. And they get first opportunity as well at our Sox Machine swag as we just completed our first pre-order of the Sox Machine cap. So those are going to be coming uh, shortly after the whole production process and then get them mailed out to everyone. So thank you guys so much for participating in the pre-order process. And like we mentioned earlier in the show on how much fun it was with the tailgate and looking forward to next year and hosting another away tailgate, our Patreon supporters go a long way in making those events happen. Uh, So if you attended the Milwaukee tailgate and you've been listening to us for a long time and you enjoy our work and you would like to get more from us, think about supporting us on patreon.com. Again, we have monthly plans that start at just $2 a month and you get, I think, a lot of content from us uh, in addition to what we already do for free. So again, to the Patreon supporters, as always, thank you guys so much for your continued support. It was great meeting some of you too this uh uh, this weekend, like people came up and just names I'd seen and names we'd seen in PO socks, uh, you know, questions every week and tweets every week and, and feedback on the site, like finally meeting them. It was great. It was. And one guy also was wearing the condor shirt. Yes. <laughs> that was great. Last from the past. <sighs> that was great. <laughs> but again, thank you guys so much who support us on patreon.com and thank you to everyone that listened to this episode of the Sox Machine podcast as it concludes this episode. Again, this could be a really busy week as far as covering the Chicago White Sox. If there is a major trade that the White Sox do before the deadline, follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Jim will be writing up on SoxMachine.com. I'll launch the Twitter space live uh, as far as our live reactions and analysis. We'll bring in friends from other White Sox blogs and podcasts 
uh, to have that conversation. Uh, so we are prepared this week for the White Sox to make moves in addition as far as covering the games that the White Sox are playing in Kansas City. And Aloy Jimenez's return. It's it's already a busy week. We just got started on Monday. Uh, should be a pretty exciting week for White Sox fans as well as they roll into their home weekend series against Cleveland to wrap up the month of July and an opportunity for the White Sox to continue to extend their lead in the American League Central. So there's a lot coming your guys' way from us this week. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.